That's uh, a great song to sing in light of what we were talking about tonight. Uh, as Chris brought to our attention the attributes of God and His, his uh, self-existence. And I was thinking about that as we were singing this last song about the events that are taking place in our world today and what is going on in Europe and all the threats that are out there, particularly the current threat where it seems as if the nation of Russia is threatening even potential nuclear options in their arsenal. And I was thinking, I wonder how many people are actually thinking about that as if that's the end of the world nuclear arsenals start to fly across the skies of our world is at the end of our world. And uh, I wonder even here, how many of us would think that? And the fourth verse of this song kind of settles that issue, doesn't it? He has written history's final page. Uh, Nuclear weapons don't write that final page. Bombs don't write that final page. Wicked rulers don't write that final page. He has written the final page, his son's return will end this age. It will not end with fire from the sky. It will not end with the raining down of any of that. Christ's return will end this age. The Lamb will come in glorious might, take back his world and end its night. What great words. What great words. How deep the wisdom of our God, unknown, unfathomed are his ways. None counsels him or knows his mind. We just bow before him all our days. <laughs> what, a, what a phenomenal words of a song that just kind of settles it, doesn't it? We're talking about the, the self-existence of God. That, that should settle you at any moment in the midst of life, particularly life in the days in which we live. Well, let's take our Bibles tonight and open them to the book of Galatians. That's where we're studying. We are in Galatians chapter 3. And tonight, as we move on in our study of Paul's letter to these believers, we find ourselves in chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. Apostle Paul says this, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise." Let's bow and ask God to attend to this time tonight. Father, we do thank you again that we can be here. We know that for our understanding, we need the illumination of the Spirit. We cannot understand even in our humanness 
beyond just what the sentence structure might be on a surface level, what you mean by what you say without the Spirit's illuminating in us, understanding the truth that is here. So help us tonight as we rely upon you, as we depend upon you for everything, for life and for godliness. Challenge us in in our hearts that we might live for you and might not be fearful of anything that man brings our way. We trust you, that we are secure in you, that you are our only hope. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. My wife and I recently met with an estate planning attorney to begin the process of setting up a legal paper for a a binding trust for whatever goods we have in life. Uh, a will, if you will, a, a trust. We, we all know about wills. Many of you probably have done those yourself. Maybe you did it yourself. Maybe you went and talked to someone who does those kinds of things like we are. Well, I want us to imagine for a moment that a person dies and they leave all of their earthly belongings to an entity other than the family. We see that from time to time as people who maybe don't have any family uh, that are after them. They leave their belongings to organizations and things like that. But what if someone had family members and they left all their stuff to an entity other than the family members? And according to the terms of the will that they set up, all of their earthly possessions are to be given to some other entity outside of the family. Well, if that kind of information is not talked about within the family before that kind of thing happens, before the death of whatever person is leaving these things, you could well imagine the surprise and the shock that would be on the faces of those who were part of the family only to find out that they get nothing. There is nothing that they are going to get from the will And we've seen it in our society. Maybe even in my scenario, their family would go to court and they would contest the will. And if all was to be found out to be just as it is, that the will was made under all the legal rules and laws that are available to the time, the family would lose the court or lose the lawsuit in court. They would gain nothing from the estate. Why? Why? Because according to the law, there is nothing that can be changed in the terms of a will after it is in effect. This is the way it works. In other words, the estate plan is legally settled when the person who is making it, when they make it and the promises of it are implemented upon the terms by which it is to be executed. Normally, that execution takes place at the death of the person, but they could have other stipulations within that. For instance, some people leave things to their grandchildren, and those grandchildren have no access to that kind of monetary subject until they reach a certain age or 
something in their life. And so along with the execution of that, as long as it's executed according to that, the the estate plan is a settled thing when the person makes it, it's legally put in writing, and it becomes executed according to the terms of it when it's made. Well, this this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is using here to explain that the promise of justification before God is by faith alone, and that fact cannot be altered even by the law. Justification by faith is by faith alone, and it can never be altered even if the law tries to alter it. Now, you look in this text, verses 15 to 18, you do not see the word will in this text. But that is what Paul is talking about with the word covenant. You see the word covenant in verse 15, and he talks about it throughout this. Talks about inheritance in verse 18. He talks about the the law does not invalidate the covenant in verse 17. This word covenant is what Paul is talking about. That is the will. A will is not a contract. A will is a covenant. They are different things. We, we could even use the term testament. Maybe some of your, your scriptures use that term to, to translate the word here that is translated covenant in the New American Standard. The word is diatheke in the original language. And it means, in some sense, a, a disposition, a, a disposition of something, especially a will, a, a covenant or a testament is the idea. It comes from another word in the original language, diatithemi, in the, in the middle voice, just to kind of give you some, some grammar there, which really talks about what is, what is uh, given over or, or what is bequested in, in the midst of this covenant, right? So it's to appoint something, the things that are appointed by this very testament. So from the original language, when Paul is talking about this in verse 15, and he begins to say, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. From the the language in the original language, it's the last will and testament that is on the mind of Paul. It is a last will and testament that Paul is talking about here. It is not some kind of contract that God made with Abraham. The contract is something that is entered into by two parties who have responsibilities in order to fulfill the contract. My wife and I, as many of you, entered into a contract when we bought our house. We signed a contract that said we will pay this amount of money every month for this house. And the bank said, okay, we'll sign that contract with you. They have a responsibility. We have a responsibility. There were two parties that came together to fulfill the contract. But that is not how a covenant works. That is not how a testament works. A testament or a covenant or a will is entered into by one party declaring in that testament what they will do no matter what. This is their promise. They're the only ones that enter into it. It's a declaration of what must happen based upon the wishes 
of those who made the testament. This is a last will and testament. So this is what Paul is using here with the Galatian believers as an illustration for these people in order for them to see that justification is only by faith. That it cannot be any other way. It must be by faith alone. And for us then tonight, for us to just glean all that we can at least from this passage in our time tonight, I want to break it up in a, in a certain way. I want us to look at the durability of God's covenant the durability of God's covenant. And then secondly, the personality of God's covenant. The personality of God's covenant. Third, the the capability of God's covenant. So the durability, the personality, the capability of God's covenant in verse 17. And then lastly, the methodology. The methodology of God's covenant. So you have durability, personality, capability, and methodology. These are all aspects here for us as we look at this covenant. Let's just take this first one, the durability. You might even write in your notes the permanence. That's what we're talking about. The permanence or the durability of God's covenant with Abraham. Verse 15, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. No one adds conditions to it. Now we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the Galatians as they are reading this letter in the churches in Galatia because Paul is using a human explanation and he's using the legal practices of the day to explain what he is talking about. According to legal practice, even on a human level, Paul is saying, I'm, I'm talking about human relations here. I want to speak to you on a human I want to bring this down to the lowest common denominator so we understand what he, I'm talking about. That's what Paul's saying. He says, with a man-made covenant, by law, no one annuls it, no one adds to it, once it's been ratified. The word ratified simply means to be executed. Once it is in place once it's been legally made and thereby executed according to what it says. Ratified is the word K-U-R-O in the original language is how we spell it with English letters. Kuro or Kuru. It's a synonym of another word that we know. We know the word kurios, don't we? Kurios is the word Lord. That's the word Lord. You read the word Lord in the original language, it's or you read Lord in your English Bibles, normally it's the Greek word kurios in the New Testament. Lord means something. It means master. Master. Master, or the one who has authority. So look at what Paul is saying. When a covenant is ratified, when it is kuriu, when it is the one in authority, when it is the Lord... When it's the ruler, when it's the thing who has authority, nothing can change it. That's what he's saying. That's what he's talking about here when he talks about even a man-made covenant. 
even in human conditions, when a, a last will and testament is the authority, nothing can change it. This is why it takes years of litigation for someone to, to contest a last will and testament. Because it is a durable item. It is a permanent reality. It is the authority. No one can change that. Not even the judge, not even the lawyers, not even any cleverness of it. It's legal, it is durable, it is permanent. We even have that, and maybe some of you have been that in your own operations of life. You Maybe you were part of a durable power of attorney. You ever heard that term? Durable power of attorney. That means when it was executed, you, the one who was legally drawn up upon for you, you being the named person in the document, had legal binding authority to do what the document said. I remember in the military when I was in Germany, I had a roommate whose parents unfortunately died close together back here in the United States, and they quickly moved him to the United States in order that he could deal with the things there. Well, all of his belongings were still left in Germany, and me being the roommate, he he made me his durable power of attorney so I could sign all the paperwork and all that kind of stuff that the government needed to be signed so that all of his goods could go to where he was. I had, I was him in that place. I had the power to do whatever it was that that Durable power of attorney gave me to do according to the rules, and no one could change that. I was the authority on it. So what we need to understand here when Paul is talking is that even in the human realm, a human covenant is an irrevocable covenant. It's irrevocable. It's durable. We might even say it is signed, sealed, and delivered. There is no way to disregard it. The only ones that can make any kind of change to it in any kind of way is the one who made it. There's no way to add to it. It's legally binding just as it is. And so the point being made here is that if if this is true in the human realm, if this is true in the created realm in which we live, then how much more so when the covenant is made by God? How much more durable is it in the realm when God is the one who is on the document? When God's the one who makes it? And that is the question that Paul wants us to think about when it comes to justification by faith. This is the question that he wants the the Galatians who are are being tempted to, to, to try to add to Jesus Christ by works as if Jesus isn't sufficient enough, as if what God has put in place is not sufficient in order to give them what God has promised to give them through Jesus Christ. He wants them to think, listen, if according to human law, a covenant is an irrevocable, irrevocably durable, if it is permanent, even in a human realm, that it's even more so when it comes to the covenant God made with Abraham. Now, what did God say to Abraham? What did God say to Abraham? Well, go back for a moment just really quickly, I want to just look at a couple verses. 
just to kind of help us see this from Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 17. Now, we're going to have to go back farther than this at at some point, but we'll get there in a minute. But Genesis chapter 15, I just want to highlight something here. God said to Abraham, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you, verse 1. Your your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, said, since you have given no offspring to me, some of your texts might say descendants there, since you've given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one whom shall come forth from your own body, body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, now look at the stars, look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. And then he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And of course, God talks about who he is, that I'm the one who brought you out, and God extols his very nature upon the reality of what Abraham believed. Now go to chapter 17. Verse 1, Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will establish, verse 7, my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings. God said to said further to Abraham, verse 9, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, and you and your descendants after you throughout all generations. This is my covenant. And on and on and on God goes by telling Abraham the promise that he would give. It's interesting, in the original language, the word here used for descendants is the same word used for, where it's plural as descendants is the same word used for offspring or other things which seem to speak of a plural nature when in fact there is a singular reality to that. And I'll show you that here in a minute. So this was this was a covenant made by God but it wasn't a contract between two equal parties. Abraham and God were not equal parties in this. This wasn't a contract. It was a testament. It was a covenant that contained a long list of promises to give to Abraham and to his seed. To his seed. You say, what's the point? Well, the point is, is that what God covenanted to do for Abraham was durable. It was durable. It was permanent. Verse 15 of Genesis says, when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside, no one adds 
any conditions to it. In other words, nothing could be changed. You say, well, that's fine, Pastor, but what does that have to do with me? What does all this have to do with us or the believers that Paul's even writing to here in Galatia? What's it have to do with us? Well, the answer to that question is everything. Because notice, notice, secondly, the personality of the covenant. Notice the personality of the covenant. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now, we just looked at a couple of those promises in Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 17, and it said descendants. I will give it to you and your descendants. And yet here, Paul says, it was spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. I love this. I love this, because if you ever doubted the Apostle Paul's understanding of the Old Testament, If you ever doubted that Paul knew what the Old Testament meant by what he said, this ought to dispel or silence any of that doubt. Paul knew that God had repeated the promise to Abraham many times. Paul knew the Old Testament. Paul knew Genesis. And sometimes God repeated it by saying that he made the promise to Abraham's offspring. Notice Genesis chapter 12, you can just write these down. Genesis 12, verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. Offspring in the Hebrew language is not a plural, it's a singular. It's a singular word. Genesis 13, verse 15, all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Same word, not a plural, singular Genesis chapter 24, verse 7, To your offspring I will give this land, same tense of the word, singular, not plural. Offspring is the word seed. The same original word in the Hebrew language. It's the word for seed. So when we look at verse 16 here in Galatians chapter 3, It is the word seed or offspring that Paul is trying to bring to light here. The Bible says seed. It does not say seeds. In other words, the emphasis of God's promise, the emphasis of God's covenant with Abraham hinges upon the use of the singular tense of the word, not the plural tense. In English, you notice that means the difference between just having a letter at the end of a word or not. So Paul knows language. Paul knows language. Technology, both a blessing and a curse. Paul knows language, right? He knows the word seed is a collective noun. That's what it's called. Technically, it's a collective noun. It means that it can be used either for a plural or either for a singular. Paul knows that. 
There are words even in the English language, as we see even in our English Bible, the word offspring, the word descendant, all can be used in that same way. In fact, Paul himself will use the word seed in a collective way in verse 29 of Genesis or Galatians chapter 3. Notice what he says in verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promise. Now that's a collective use of that. That means all of us. All who believe. So Paul knew how this word could be used. The Holy Spirit was carrying Paul along as he's writing this. And so Paul knew that God had promised to Abraham that his descendants would be numerous by way of their physical reality. He knew that God was going to do that. His descendants would be as the sand in the seashore and the stars of the sky. And as we saw in Genesis 17, Abraham believed, or Genesis 15, Abraham believed God. But what Paul is emphasizing here in verse 16 is that God's covenant promise to Abraham about his seed does not refer as a collective noun. It refers as a singular noun. It refers to a particular person. This is the, the personality of the covenant. So Paul is actually explaining to us what the grammar of the Old Testament explicitly means by what it says. He's actually exegeting the Old Testament for us. The promise of the seed refers in a special way, Paul says, to Christ. And to your seed, verse 16, that is Christ. Jesus Christ is the true seed. Jesus Christ is the promised seed of Abraham. He is the personality of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Was not in the plural sense, it was in a specific sense. It was Christ. In other words, the Abrahamic covenant was ultimately all about Jesus Christ. The Abrahamic covenant was all about Jesus Christ. It pointed ahead way ahead of Abraham, way beyond Abraham to his seed that was to come. Remember what Galatians 3.8 says? And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, what? Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham by saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. How are that blessing going to come? It was going to come through the promised seed. The blessing is Christ. And what God promised to Abraham was the good news of Jesus Christ, and that in Him all the nations would be blessed. You see, that's how we're included, not being Jews. That's how we're included in all of the blessing of God. All we need is faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying to these Galatian brothers, listen, it's, it's not about biology. It's about Christology. It's not about your biological heritage or your biological makeup or or the biology in Abraham that's not what it's about it's about the christology 
Well, that means that the covenant promise was truly and fully for Christ. The covenant promise given to Abraham was truly and fully actually for Christ. It was a promise to Christ. He's the inherited one. He's the one who receives the inheritance. And in Christ, by faith, the promise belongs to us. That's what Paul's saying to the Galatians. Listen, you can't get the promise through the law. You can't get it that way because the promise is in Christ. And the promise, He is the heir. He is the heir of the covenant. He is the heir of the last will and testament. He is the one who is the answer to it. Paul's saying, without being united with Christ, there is no inheritance in the promise. How are we united with Christ? By faith. It is by faith that we are so united with Christ that what is His is also ours. He, we have our inheritance in Him. In fact, that's exactly how Ephesians chapter 1 says it. In Him we have an inheritance. In fact, the end of this chapter, Paul puts an exclamation point on this reality. Notice what he says in verse 26. Chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus... Then verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So promise is the key word there. We are heirs of promise. How? Why? Because of the capability of the covenant. The durability of it is that it's unchangeable. The personality of the covenant is Jesus Christ. All who are in Him receive the promise. And now the capability of the covenant is verse 17. What I'm saying is this, Paul says, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. In other words, the covenant is capable because it is not according to law. It is according to promise. It would be incapable to give us anything if it was according to law because we could never keep the law. The law can only give us a curse. We learned that a few weeks ago. That's what the law does. It curses. Law has no ability to offer justification. It has no ability to transfer anything according to promise. It's not of promise. It is of law. And so what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, listen, you have to understand something. The covenant and the law operate by completely different principles. One is by faith. The other is by effort. The, the covenant is based on what God will do through faith. The law is based upon what a person must do by effort. Did you hear the difference? The covenant is based upon what God will do. 
through faith. The law is based on what a person must do by their own efforts. We can think of it this way. When God gave the covenant, God said, I will, I will, I will, I will. Right? That's what he said. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. But when the law was given, it says you must do, you must do, you must do. And if you don't do, then you are cursed. So the law and the promise operate differently. I was reading this week, one pastor put it this way, quote, the promise sets forth a religion of God. In other words, it is God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative. But the law sets forth a religion of man. In other words, man's duty, man's work, man's responsibility. The promise has to simply be believed, but the law has to be obeyed. There's the difference. The law and the promise are not on the same terms. One is superior to the other. According to God's gracious choice, the promise is superior to the law. You say, why? Well, for one thing, the promise came first. That's what Paul said. Paul says, what I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, doesn't invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. So one reason the law is superior or the, the promise is superior to the law is because the promise came first. The law came 430 years later. Now listen, that tells us when we just let it rest upon us, that tells us that the gospel has more to do with what God said to Abraham than with what God said to Moses. You ever think about that? The gospel has more to do with what God said to Abraham by way of promise than what God said to Moses in giving the law. It was almost as if the legalistic Jews of the day had forgotten about Abraham. At least the real Abraham. They had forgotten about him. Oh, certainly they had attached themselves to Abraham by way of their physical heritage. They were children of Abraham, but, but they were more attached to Moses for their spiritual heritage, the law. And then they attached Abraham to Moses and said, okay, you, you got Abraham, you got the promises of Abraham, but you got to do the law too or nothing works. That's why that came down to Galatia and started to preach the way they did and said, yeah, you, you can believe in the child that God was promised through Abraham, but you've got to keep the law too. You've got to do what the law says. The law says you must be circumcised. In other words, it took human works to complete what began by faith. That's why Paul says, who bewitched you? You foolish Galatians, who, who has caused your mind to be so twisted? Paul says, no, 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 listen, that's not how it works. The law didn't change the terms of God's covenant. When God gave the law, he wasn't giving the law by, and thereby changing the terms of the promise he made to Abraham. God's covenant wasn't a contract between him and Abraham. And then the law comes along and the terms of that contract change. That's not what God did. 
And if the law was required for justification, then too bad, so sad for Abraham. Right? If keeping the law was required in order to be justified, then how in the world could God say it was accounted to him as righteousness if it was accounted to him as righteousness 430 years before the law? What law was it? Abraham was dead and gone way before the law came. Fortunately, Abraham was justified long before the law. It was all through the only means of justification. It was by faith alone. He believed God. So the promise was a matter always to be received by faith. Never to be received through the law. And that's what Paul is trying to say here. In fact, that's his final point here in verse 18. The methodology of the covenant. If the inheritance is based on law, what he means by that is based upon keeping the rules according to the rules of the contract. If it's by means of a contract and you must keep the rules of the contract in order to receive whatever the contract is saying, then it's no longer based on a promise. My home contract, the bank does not say to me in the contract, if you fulfill all of your payments, then we will do thus and so. They say, no, if you don't fulfill your payments, we will take your home away. This is Paul's point. This is how the inheritance always works. This is always the procedure for an inheritance. A beneficiary gets the inheritance not based upon a contract made between them and the party who's giving whatever it is they're giving. The inheritance is given on the basis of a binding legal promise. That's what the last will and testament is. If God promised an inheritance, if he promised it by faith, Abraham believed God, then it must come by way of that promise and not by way of any works. My children will receive whatever inheritance there is when I'm gone. They will be either happy or sad about that, depending on how they like junk. But it will be based upon the promise that my wife and I make when we make up the documents. That's the whole point of this text, beloved. God deals with us according to his promise and not according to our performance. Let me say that again. God deals with us according to his promise, not according to our performance. Sometimes we get ourselves all tied up in our own minds about whether we're saved or not saved. We believed in God. We're, we've been walking by faith. But, but then we, we have some sinful activity in our life. We, we don't like it, and so we begin to doubt. And that's what sin does. It causes all kinds of things in us. And yet, what we have done is now just said, justification is by my effort. Not by the promise of God. It's by my performance. But we are justified by faith. We are not justified by our efforts. So if God's covenant was established by faith, then the covenantal relationship we have with God through Christ is also by faith. It is not by our efforts. We believe what God said. We trust God. 
In other words, let me say it this way. What was for Abraham is the same for the Galatians and is the same for us today. Nothing has changed. What was good for Abraham when the promise was given is good for all those who, like Abraham, believed God. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone. That is simply to say that we cannot earn a promise. It's not how promises work. You cannot earn a promise. A promise is not how promises work. You cannot earn it. When a promise is made, all the potential receiver of that promise can do, all they can do is trust that the one who made it will in fact fulfill it. That's all they can do. That they will make good on the promise. That's how it is with God's promises. Only He can fulfill them. You can't earn them. You can't buy them. You can't find them in the store. Only God can fulfill them. And so, when He promises salvation, that tells us that we cannot earn salvation. Right? Salvation is a promise of God. It is not a contract that by way we earn if we do the right thing. Just listen to Romans chapter 4 verses 13 to 15. Here's how Paul said it. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, Talking about the physical progeny. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Because the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, in other words, where there is a promise, there is no violation. You see, you cannot violate the promise. Because it's not something to keep. We simply believe. That's why the law can only curse. Because the law is not of the promise. That is simply to say that we cannot fulfill or break a promise that we have not made. We're not in a contract with God. God covenanted, made a last will and testament, if you will, said, believe upon me and you will be saved. And the beauty of what we've been talking about, at least the last couple Sunday nights in the attributes of God is the reality that God will not break and God will always fulfill His promises that He makes or He is not God. Therefore, salvation does not rest on the law. And we need to be thankful that it does not rest on the law because we always break the law, right? Sin. It's ever before us. We break the law all the time. So salvation doesn't rest upon the law. Salvation rests upon the promise that God cannot break. God has promised forgiveness of sin 
eternal life through death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to all who will receive him by faith. And God cannot renege on that promise. His covenant is irrevocable and it will stand forever. Notice what Paul says in verse 19. We're not going to get into this tonight, but notice what he says. Because this is a question in our mind. Why the law then? Why the law? If everything is by promise, is everything according to God is the promise of God that if we believe what God said concerning His Son, we would be saved, then why in the world the law? We'll get into that next time. God's covenant, beloved, God's covenant is our secure hope. It is our secure hope. Why is Jesus Christ everything? Because Jesus Christ is the promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't rely upon ourselves in order to be saved. We thank you that it's none of us, that it's all of Christ. We thank you that it wasn't according to law, that it was by promise. And you promised that you would give to Abraham a seed. And you did that faithfully. You kept it. You ratified it based upon your own character, your own nature. You cannot lie. You cannot be less than who you are. You cannot edit yourself. You cannot go back on your word. You always do what you say. And so the very nature of who you are undergirds the validity of the promise and the reality that it will and is fulfilled for all who believe upon Jesus Christ. That it is not according to our morality. It is not according to our works. It is not according to our heritage or anything left up to us. It's all left in your hands. When we believe, you execute the very promise you made. and You execute it not just for today. You execute it forever. For in Christ we are heirs of all the heavenly blessings. We know life now and we will never be judged because you have judged our sin in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that the scriptures preached the gospel to Abraham before the law ever came. We thank you that we know what is right? We are to believe it. We are commanded to believe it. We know that you will honor it. Help us, Lord, in our belief. All to your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.